2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'm speaking with Michael Kagan about his newest book, The Battle to Stay in America, Immigration's Hidden Frontline. It's published by the University of Nevada Press earlier this year. Michael Kagan is the director of the UNLV Immigration Clinic, which defends children and families fighting deportation in Las Vegas and is Joyce Mack Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. He was a plaintiff in one of the lawsuits that prevented the Trump administration from adding a question about citizenship to the 2020 census. He's written for The Washington Post, Salon.com, and The Daily Beast, and is a leading national scholar of immigration and refugee law. His scholarship has been widely published, and several of his articles have been the most widely cited articles in the field of international refugee and asylum law, and they've also been relied on by courts in multiple countries. Before going to the University of Nevada, Professor Kagan spent 10 years building legal aid programs for refugees in the Middle East and Asia, and lived in London, Cairo, Beirut, and Jerusalem. He held teaching positions at Tel Aviv University and the American University in Cairo. Michael Kagan, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for, ha- thanks for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to be here.
1: And now just to get started, I'm wondering if you can tell me how you came to write The Battle to Stay in America, Immigration's Hidden Frontline.
2: It's a good question. And as your, your bio kind of explains, usually I write uh, law professor things, uh, you know, things for an uh, audience of other legal scholars and practitioners. And this is a, was a much more personal book at one level and also a book that is uh, really not intended For uh, the specialist audience at all. In fact, uh, my publisher made me add a line to the introduction just to point out the fact that there's nothing in here. There's no information about the law that would. There's nothing in the book that would surprise a uh, an immigration lawyer or any of uh, my colleagues who teach immigration law at other law schools. What I really wanted to do and felt the need to do was to try to give people a picture of how the cruelties of immigration law were operating in the midst of American communities. I think that the the rise to power of Donald Trump opened a lot of people's eyes. Uh, That that in many ways is the silver lining on immigration from the Trump years. But I think many people who uh, think of the United States as an open country for immigrants really didn't realize the nature, the actual nature of our immigration laws and the enforcement apparatus built around them and uh, and were shocked to know that this level of cruelty was so po- possible so quickly. So I wanted to write something that would explain why that could happen, why people, and to explain that it was right in the, not, it was not just at the border, it was right in the middle of our communities and that we are living amidst, next to people and depending on people in our daily lives who may have good reason to fear you know whether their husband or their dad is going to come home at the end of the day because people might be taken
1: and i think that really comes across in the book um it's a very complicated and bureaucratic and difficult but punitive system to understand and yet it is this just shocking level of cruelty now, just picking up on this point you write about um, and you just mentioned about people being worried about, um, you know, if they're going to, parents being worried if they're going to be there when their kid's coming home from school. So, for example, you actually gave a presentation at your daughter's school. You wrote about on one occasion where you went and gave a what you call a know your rights presentation at her school and you gave advice about what to do if ice knocks at the door Now, um, and what needs to be done. Now, I mean, this would be just so worrying for parents and anyone in itself. But you also write about how the talk at your daughter's school went much worse than usual. I was especially moved when I read this um, about by one question one of the mothers asked. She said, if I'm taken, who will pick up my son after school? Now, can you tell me about what happened that day um, and, you know, why it was so difficult?
2: Well, I think what... What struck me about that day that that was very early in 2017 Trump had been in office not very long yet at that time and people were extremely scared I should say um you know this has been documented now by by research uh, Latino birth weight has gone down in the United States uh, independent of immigration status that is the physical manifestation of a community being under attack it's a one of the, birth weight is one of the most objective ways you can me- measure how scared and anxious people are. So I've, I had, there was a great impulse uh, um, on my part and many people's parts, I think, just to do something. But I'm not an immigrant myself. No one in my immediate family is in danger of deportation. Uh, and people want to do something and, you know, do some good but sometimes there is a danger with that, that it's much more about us and feeling that we've done something than about actually helping. So we've been doing these know your rights trainings I had done several of them. And, uh, sometimes I would do them with colleagues. So this one I did alone because it was my, my own kid's school and went on much longer than usual. I, I think that people might, I think people are very polite. Usually when an outsider comes and gives a presentation, even if what he presents is not all that useful. But in this case, maybe because I introduced myself as as a parent in the same school, they might have felt more comfortable. And so I got tougher questions, worse questions, and just highlighted for me the degree to which as a lawyer, as someone who teaches this area of law, I couldn't actually solve anyone's problems. And this woman who asked that, I recognized her. I don't know her name, but I recognized her because she had uh, been a chaperone with me on an overnight uh field trip with the uh, fourth grade just a few months earlier. And I even remember exactly where she sat on the bus driving up into Northern Nevada. And uh, she asked me that. It was so matter of fact, uh, it was a parental question, the kind of parent questions my wife and I have to deal with, you know, every day about who's transporting who where. And, but she just said, if I'm taken, who will pick my son up after school? So practical and so awful. And I, I, I stammered something about signing guardianship forms. Um, two teachers I heard next to me ask, "What would we do?" and then said something about to her about filling out forms to authorize other people to pick their kids up of school. But after those, those answers obviously don't answer her question, right? You don't. You, you can't fill out a form to replace someone's mother and. And, um, but that is what has been done to so many families. And then for every family it's happened to many others have had to fear it and prepare for it.
1: Yeah. And I think that is, I mean, just the practical ramifications and living with that fear on a day to day basis. It's, it's difficult, honestly, to imagine. Um, so I'm wondering if you can tell me then, so what was the shift? If there was one, um, from, under Obama to Trump,
2: right? This I I really like this question. It's one of my favorite topics when I do community presentations because I think there are so much confusion uh, on uh, really about both Trump and Obama. Trump, in many ways, is more simple because he has his administration has tried to find maximum cruelty and maximum exclusion and maximum detention and maximum deportation. Um, And uh, there's been evolution in the techniques and something they have done have been more effective towards their goals than others. But Obama was more complicated. For every Obama immigration policy, there was an opposite Obama immigration policy, which is why he could be perceived by the right as being essentially promoting open borders and called the porter in chief by the left. Uh, He simultaneously created the DACA program for DREAMers and at the same time, just a year, a couple of years before uh, actually starting to lock up families seeking asylum and being incredibly harsh to them. So um, he's very complicated. For undocumented immigrants living in a place like Las Vegas, inside the United States, people who were already here, probably the most important Obama policies came in his second term when he more successfully was able to bring – immigration and customs enforcement we call ice under control by through what's called enforcement priorities basically what this means is that he told ice if someone does not have a criminal record of some level of seriousness leave them alone most people who benefited from this never knew they benefited because they didn't get a notice in the mail telling them that they benefited but according to one study Eighty seven percent of undocumented immigrants in the United States were shielded by this. The first thing that Trump did uh, on domestic immigration enforcement when he came into office was to eliminate this policy. And um, his first ICE director said, essentially, everyone should be afraid, made it known that all undocumented immigrants in the United States are targets. And uh, here in Las Vegas, that made us the front line. Um, where I work because um, Las Vegas, the state of Nevada, has the highest per capita population of undocumented immigrants in the country. About one in six children in public schools here has an undocumented family member at home. So when you say all of those people are targets, that means a lot of our neighbors. That means the parents of my students at the university here are targets. That means actually some students at the university are targets. So it is a far reaching attack into the heart of an American community driven by a very arbitrary set of laws with a pretty uh, heavy degree of racism guiding them.
1: And I think that came through in your book. Um, So what what I understood was that rather than just being a purely administrative system, the immigration system has become a potential, uh, it has the potential to criminalise immigrants by the interaction of immigration law and, say, the criminal law, Um, notwithstanding, you know, that people are being deported. So, for example, for regulatory sort of breaches. Um, You talk about one of the chapters, the broken brake light that changed everything as you describe it. Can you talk a bit more about this and what happened perhaps under Trump with ICE?
2: Right. That's the story of a a undocumented immigrant who uh, I try to trace through the whole book because it illustrates an aspect of how ICE works, how immigration enforcement works, how deportation works. That I think most people don't see. He's a handyman. Uh, he had done a lot of different jobs uh he had no criminal record other than not paying a ticket for a broken brake light on his pickup truck that he used for work and he uh, went to uh home depot to buy um supplies for a job and when he was pulling out was pulled over by a motorcycle cop and um and uh because he had a bench warrant for not paying his uh traffic ticket he was locked up in the jail now that would have been an awful day for me, too, but it was really just the beginning the way we we people typically have feared ice raids, and that's what i would uh, people would often ask about in fact, at the beginning of the Trump administration, I feared ice raids. I thought that's the way the attack would come. I envisioned you know large squads of federal agents with buses and vans swooping into a neighborhood, grabbing people, putting them on the vans. And, you know, a little bit of that has happened, but that's actually not the way the deportation machine works. The way it actually works most of the time is that the federal immigration system, which, as you said, it's not a criminal system. It's a supposedly a civil system. Basically it's just built on top of the local criminal justice system. Now, and as everyone should know, especially after, Everything happened over this past summer in the United States. We've got lots of problems, particularly for people of color, in the criminal justice system. Um, So uh, incidentally, I've been pulled over, as I note in the book, for having my brake light broken, and I didn't even get a ticket. Uh, Whereas uh, this man uh, from Central America, and he did. Uh, I don't think that's a coincidence in our criminal justice system. But that's just the beginning. If it was just a ticket... It then it wouldn't be great, but it, it it would not be the end of the world. But be, by being booked into the jail, he was then transferred to ICE. Instead of just being given the chance to pay the ticket, he was held extra time, eventually turned over to ICE. He missed the birth of his child. His, his fiance was pregnant and, and about to give birth at this time. And he's languished almost three weeks in a local jail, but a local jail that was contracting out its cells to ICE, to the federal government, to hold people on solely immigration grounds. Again, this man's worst criminal offense was not paying the ticket for a broken brake light. That way in which the immigration system is built um, to our local criminal justice system is something I think most people don't understand. Um, it became my main focus once I really realized that's how the attack is coming. It's coming in a way people don't see, and it's very efficient then that becomes the focus of how you stop it because that's, you have to look at the dep- deportation system is a pipeline. You need to figure out, find all of its valves. If you want to figure out where you can slow it down um, and, and uh, we trace that story of that man through the book uh, and he's uh, still fighting his deportation today.
1: And now picking up in this point of the deportation system as a pipeline and you know, you said you feared that um, in the beginning that there would be these ICE raids, but yet it was, it, you know, it was just as insidious and more subtle than that. There was, There's also the, um, in addition to the widely reported incidents, you write about how oftentimes instead of high-profile arrests by ICE in the field, immigrants are handed from the city to ICE by right. choice. That's right. Um, yeah, can you perhaps talk a bit more about that and how that works?
2: So, in fact, the city of Las Vegas jail has a policy, still on the books today, that if any foreign-born person gets booked into the jail on any offense, no matter how minor, they, their identity will be faxed to ICE. So essentially, the city of Las Vegas is willfully turning over its own residence to ICE, no matter what they're arrested for. Uh, this scares me as a parent. My kids, as I write in the book, are adopted in, in Ethiopia. They're both foreign born if my daughter's now 15 years old. Knock on wood, uh, she's not gotten in any trouble. But teenagers do stupid things sometimes. And if she ever gets, pays a visit to that jail, um, she'll her name will be faxed to ICE. Uh, I think this is appalling. And uh, and I and it's also that is the mouth of the deportation pipeline. Uh, our, we have two major jails in Las Vegas that people are booked in to uh, for crimes and arrests, both minor and major. And um, that is actually where, that's the hunting ground for ICE. That's where 80% of people arrested by ICE are actually not arrested by ICE in the street. They're actually just taken and transferred from local jails. That's where the deportation pipeline begins. And I think very few people actually understand that. Even the people operating that part of the pipeline. I've talked to police officers at some of these jails, Even they, I think, don't understand what they're doing when they hand someone over to ICE and how that system is going to work and what's going to happen to that person.
1: And so then I guess my next question, bringing back to a point you made earlier, there does seem to be a lot of ethnic stereotyping um, and the way that police discretion is used as well. Um, And it seems in many cases to be applied discriminatorily. Can you talk a bit about this
2: i can tell you that at our clinic at the university of nevada las vegas for years and this is pre-trump we had heard that guards at the immigration detention center used a lot of racial epithets um sometimes in trying to pressure them to sign forms to consent to deportation sometimes just to keep people in line um, not always to be really clear, uh, and uh, in my book, I was very really careful about this. The man I told you about, the man with the broken brake light, um, he didn't have—he didn't like being detained. He didn't have particular complaints about his treatment in the detention center, uh, and um, so I don't want to. It doesn't happen all the time to everyone. But we have a systemic problem in the United States of uh, the way our police uh, tend to deal with people of color. Law enforcement of all types, including immigration, but also including traffic enforcement, includes a lot of discretion. Uh, we all know this about when we get pulled over by that police officer. Uh, at least people like me know this. I'm a, up from an upper-middle-class white background, and I always have known that um, uh, you get pulled over by police, you still have a chance maybe of convincing them not to give you the ticket. I've been, I think I've personally been pulled over three times and gotten a ticket once. Um, And I know that um, I actually talked to my students once about jaywalking, uh, because I had encountered uh, people with jaywalking tickets. Um, I'm raised on the East Coast. I think I was jaywalking uh, (laughs) very early in my life. Uh, And it's, um, um, I've never had a police officer say, say anything to me about jaywalking. Um, but I have met a, a lot of people who are black and Latino in Las Vegas who actually have had jaywalking tickets, including students at the law school. And uh, that surprises me. And I think it's indicative um, of the little subtle ways that our system is actually different for different people, uh, which, of course, that for some for some people, uh, as in the George Floyd situation, that can escalate to a murder. Um, more typically, it's this little level of harassment that just makes your life a little bit harder. Uh, Because if you're having trouble with money, the last thing you need is to get a ticket, uh, you know, for whatever it is, $150, whatever it will cost for a ticket for a broken brake light uh, when you're short on cash, uh, whereas someone else like me just gets a warning and a friendly uh, reminder from the police officer to to get it fixed.
1: Mm -hmm. And now, I guess, just taking a step back a little bit – talking about the immigrants that you write about in Nevada. Can you talk about how difficult it is to enter the U.S. from across the border in Mexico legally?
2: Right. So I I tell a story, to try to illustrate this, a story of a pretty typical family um, who came um, around 2001. um, And originally when they came, it was a mother and father young mother and father with a six year old daughter and they came and then they had two more kids here in the U S and I explained, I don't, and I actually had some debates with people when I was writing the book about how to talk about the fact that they crossed the border illegally. And I try not to avoid that subject at all. I think it's on everyone's mind. And I think it confuses many people. Why don't they come legally? Why don't they, because we're, aren't we a nation of laws? And, uh, the answer to that question, is that there was no option for them to come legally. Like take through, go through the technicalities of immigration law about how there is no visa that they could have gotten. The visas that were perhaps most similar for them would have had 25-year waits, uh, and they really couldn't have gotten that kind of visa at all. The real option is not for most people, uh, most of the undocumented immigrants who live in places like Las Vegas, who ha- came here 20 years ago, 15 years ago, their real option was not to come legally or illegally. Their option was to come illegally, or don't come at all. And when we, when people say, "I'm not against uh, immigration. I'm only against illegal immigration," what they're really meaning, if they understand it, is they're, they're, they're telling people, "Don't come. I don't want you." But I don't know that everyone who says I want people to come legally actually knows that's the implication. I think many Americans, many Americans who are not xenophobic are genuinely confused because if you're a person like me um, who has most of life greased for them and and who doesn't um, have arbitrary problems with law enforcement, you know, you expect American law is mostly going to give people a fair shake. That's what we're taught to expect. Immigration law isn't like that. It's a deviation. And so the, the, even the legal labels are a way of excluding people but making everyone feel better about it because we are used to legal systems that we think are going to give us a fair shot, but there's a legal way to do it. There just isn't for, most of the, for a very large number of people who now make up um, you know, my neighbours here in Las Vegas.
1: And so then what are the practical ramifications and the barriers to entering the U.S.? Um, without the proper papers? And logistically, how do people come and what are the dangers?
2: Right. Well, the first one thing to notice about practical ramifications before talking about how people actually come is that uh, once people have crossed the border illegally, uh, it's called entry without inspection, our immigration law essentially will never forgive them. This is really important to understand. So this family that I was talking about. They came in 2001 uh, approximately and been here ever since. And uh, both parents uh, worked and worked their way up into the food industry. Um, their daughter they came with has DACA now. And the two younger kids are U.S. citizens. So this is what's called a mixed family. There is basically, under our current law, there's nothing the parents can do. and Even nothing the oldest daughter can do to uh, that would allow them to... Uh, acquire legal residency in the U.S. because we will not forgive them in our law from how, for, having, for the way they entered. Um, tragically, I should probably note the mother I described there, um, she died um, just about a month ago from COVID. Um, uh, she's a prep chef at very high-end restaurants in Las Vegas. And that's, I try to, you know, I stress that a lot because I want people to understand our connections to people like this because a lot of us, we don't see them but we may have eaten the food that they've cooked and of uh, dishes that, that people like this wash and um, we're all connected. Now, in terms you asked about I think you asked about uh, how the people enter the country at this time in 2001 and they pay the, a the smuggler uh, and walk through the desert. It's very dangerous. People die doing that. Uh, they saw um, people uh, um, who had come back. Over the border, after being caught in very bad physical condition, um, they initially planned to go as a whole family. And when they saw some people like that, um, the dad decided he was going to go alone and sent his wife and daughter uh, back to Mexico City. He walked through the desert for three days, and um, he uh, he thought he, the smuggler told him it would be one day, and he he told this in terms of a Snickers bar. He had brought one Snickers bar. And uh, his plan was to eat the Snickers bar after he made it um, into the United States, uh, and uh, he thought he'd eat it after the first day, and he had to save it. Um, and uh, but he made it, got to Las Vegas. At that time, uh, the border was much uh, was less guarded than it is today. And um, according to U.S. government data and estimates, the majority of people at that time in in 2000, 2001, uh, were able to cross the border uh, illegally, uh, successfully. And that's what he did. And then he eventually sent money for his um, wife and daughter to come and follow him. Today, it's much harder for people to cross. Um, The Border Patrol estimates they catch about three out of four. There's also been shifts in who wants to come. So uh, Mexicans actually are not... Um, The last few years, they've not actually been the dominant group uh, in trying to come across that border. It's been uh, people fleeing violence from Central America who come through Mexico. And uh, they actually, people, they are not trying to elude border patrol. They typically want to uh, apply for asylum. And so they attempt to come to ports of entry or to cross the border. We have clients at our clinic, kids who crossed the border and then waited for border patrol. They were not trying to elude. They were trying to turn themselves in.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: And so maybe then you can talk about these children, the unaccompanied children um, crossing into the US. I'm interested to find out who they are and you know why and how they're they're arriving. What happens to them once they make it into the US?
2: Right. So Some of my colleagues uh, here started a program in 2014 to provide legal aid to unaccompanied child refugees who came over the border. Um, This is what became a bit of a crisis in 2014. Um, People mostly El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, Kids really range in ages, some really young um, in uh, elementary school. More of them, middle school and high school, and um, cross the border alone. That's what why they're called unaccompanied. And um, the reason they would end up in a place like Las Vegas uh, typically was because they had family here. So they would, uh, someone in the U.S. government would find their relative, and see if the relative could take them in, and that's why they would come to a place like this, and then they would be put in deportation proceedings in immigration court is where we would represent them so the u.s government would then try to deport them and in that process they could try to make their asylum claims. now their stories vary but nearly all of them involve rampant gang violence and uh that's afflicted um those countries in particular el salvador probably being the worst although uh, um there's a lot of violence in all of them they uh to say a lot of gang violence sometimes conjures the wrong the wrong framework because you know people will think of you know gangs in Chicago or gangs in LA and while we've had problems with that in the US we've never had anything approaching what's going on there where the uh, the MS13 gang and the 18th Street gang have grown in power so much that they they uh, political scientists sometimes think that they do rival a kind of quasi state actor in some villages so what will happen, um, the story is different from person to person. There's a gender dynamic. Um, for the boys, their goal is often to try to recruit them to join the gang, and the, the boys feel it's, their option is either to run away and try to find safety for going to the U.S. or to become gang members themselves and, and both inflict harm on others and have a pretty short lifespan. The girls, obviously, much worse. Uh, a very large number of our female clients uh, have been threatened with rape or raped. And the surprising thing I want people to know about the asylum system is that even when U.S. government officials believe that and know it's true, they will still promote, pursue the deportation of that girl back to that place. Because in our asylum law, it is not enough to fear being killed or beaten or raped. You have to be raped for the right reason. And the U.S. government will dispute the reasons and the technicalities in order to deport you. And by the way, all that started under Obama and just continued and intensified under Trump.
1: And I think that's a really important point. So can you explain um, for any listeners not familiar, the legal basis of having to prove persecution um, if they're going to be returned to their country of origin? And what do you know, these children and other immigrants have to show in order to be able to stay in the U.S.?
2: Right. Well, there are probably two things to to think about in an asylum application in in really basic terms. One is uh, having a well-founded fear of persecution. Uh, You have to genuinely be in danger. And there's a, you know, you have to satisfy the judge that you're sufficiently in danger, that you're not just speculating that you'll be hurt you have to be hurt pretty seriously. Um, you know, being denied a job that you wanted, even because of, say, racial discrimination, that alone is not going to be enough for an asylum claim. But you have to be serious enough human rights violations. Now, that's not typically the problem for our clients, the seriousness, because they um, groups like MS-13, if they're targeting you, they're not subtle. They don't walk the line uh, with in terms of, um, you know, how much they're threatening you, they, they will literally cut people in pieces. So the problem though, is it's not even enough though, to have a well-founded fear of being persecuted. You have to be, be in that situation for one of five reasons, race, religion, political opinion, membership in a particular social group or nationality. Some of those are easier than others for an applicant, but, um, most people fleeing gangs in Central America, they'll end up in that trying to go for that particular social group stat category, which is the most unclear in the law. It's the most litigated in asylum law. Um, since I graduated from law school in year 2000, the definition in the U S has shifted many times. And I suspect will again. And um, the Trump administration has worked hard to, to tighten the definition even more so that um, almost no one in the real world is going to be able to get asylum in the United States.
1: It's, I mean, it's really frightening and it's concerning also, I think in terms of the international legal obligations. Um, Yeah. um,
2: Well, and let let me be clear, that definition comes from the international legal obligations. That's an, I, uh, my career as Uh, I worked abroad with refugees before coming to the U.S. I I worked with the same legal definition in Cairo, in Egypt, uh, as I do here in Las Vegas. Uh, But uh, it is subject to many interpretations, and the government does not have to choose to interpret it so strictly. Uh, And uh, one can argue about whether it's even legally allowed to always interpret it so strictly, but it certainly doesn't have to. Hmm.
1: And so then what is the role of lawyers? in this process?
2: Well, I was, without lawyers, a person going through the deportation system has almost no chance. Um, I was just reading a report about a program in New York City. People facing deportation without a lawyer are, end up, uh, are ordered deported more than 90 percent of the time, whereas with a lawyer, they often are able to avoid deportation around half the time. So that's a huge, huge difference. For asylum, it's it's equally stark uh, to be able to both prove that you're in danger, to be able to know what kind of evidence to put together and to bring to the judge and how to present it. And then to be able to navigate this, these arcane distinctions about what a particular social group is, something that confuses judges and courts all the time. The idea that a a 15 year old kid um, who doesn't speak English is going to be able to do that on, on their own is a makes it would make a mockery of justice except that's our system we don't actually provide them lawyers we don't we don't when people are locked up their liberty's been taken away and they're threatened with harm we don't actually give them a lawyer unless they can find their own and there just aren't enough to go around uh, for people who don't have a lot of money to pay for it
1: and this um, really struck me in the book so you talked about for example one case where and oftentimes there are children who are unrepresented in court. Um, so, for example, you wrote that when I saw a child alone in immigration court the first time, it was chilling. A kid, maybe 11, maybe younger, maybe even a little older with scrawny shoulders and no English, sitting alone in a courtroom at the respondent's table with a government lawyer in a suit at the opposite table. A judge in robes sits behind a raised desk at the front, the Department of Justice seal behind him. The judge asked the respondent, a boy, to confirm his address. The child waits for the translation, then tells the judge that's not his address anymore because he's moved. The judge asks for the new address and the boy gives it with a little smile. He's answered the judge's questions well. Now you're right, does the boy even really understand why he's here? No one knows. Can you explain how the system operates to reduce outcomes such as this so a child can be, you know, facing deportation with the consequences of that and they're not even able to have access to a lawyer?
2: Right. Well, I think it comes back to the fact that we have classified this process as civil rather than criminal. And what that means in American law is that we don't recommend we don't recognize a right to government provided counsel as we would if uh, a person were sentenced to were or, or charged with murder or, or charged with a, a crime that carried a prison term. We would then um, provide them a lawyer through public defender system, but not if you're threatened with deportation. Even if you're detained while you're being threatened with deportation, we won't provide them a lawyer. One of the most positive trends to emerge in the last few years has been a lot of localities using local money to try to fund deportation defense for people in their own community. Uh, That's really positive. I hope that movement leads eventually to the federal government providing uh, legal defense as they should, Uh, because I think the idea that people are getting a fair process, uh, deportation is one of the harshest things the government can do to you. It's a violent act. It's just like throwing someone into prison for a very long time. And uh, we ought to make sure people are represented at a minimum before doing that. Uh, and I, I would like to think even if people disagree about who should be given asylum, that a lot of Americans want our processes to be fair. We want them to be fair. We've got to give people lawyers. You cannot have you, – frankly, you can't have adults without lawyers in the system. But the idea that we have put children into the system without lawyers, I think, uh, it, 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 it's a shame on all of us. And we were doing that shame before – before others. You know, that was before family separation.
1: And in this sense, you also write about um, how lawyers themselves have actually been targeted. There seems to be a broader program to discourage immigration, um, not just by denying lawyers, but you write that you and lawyers, you and other lawyers have been directly and personally targeted. Can you talk about what happened here?
2: So I think you're describing, uh, I quote, directly, some of the messages I received, um, especially the first couple of years of the Trump administration, um, some were anti-Semitic and some were, uh, well, one was, I guess it was essentially a rape threat against either my daughter or my wife. Uh, and I'd never encountered anything like that before. I think uh, a lot of us have been surprised, you know, to find out the degree of latent racism and anti-Semitism in the United States that has been awoken the last few years here. Um, But certainly if you, it's not just lawyers, but any community activist, anyone who speaks publicly in favor of immigrants, in favor of people of color can be targeted this way. I think I am not alone in that. And I think that I fear in this country that that's going to continue. Uh, There are a lot of people who are very angry um, there's violence seems to be right below the surface and, um, yeah. look, it's just, you know, Hey, it's just a direct, me- a direct message on Facebook. Who cares? But the reality is, I think most people who know if you've ever gotten a message like that for any reason, that, um, it's extremely stressful. I guess there are people who eventually get used to it. Uh, but for to whom it happens more often than to me, but when you get a threat like that, it's stressful. It's something you, it, it bounces around in your head for a while, and um, too many people have been living with that just because they have been trying to speak out for their neighbors.
1: And I think that's really interesting because you write about this in the context of a broader sort of psychological welfare, and that this seems to be part of a program to send a very clear message that things can get worse.
2: Yes. I, I, that's a chapter of a title of the chapter in my book, psychological warfare. And I, I think it's a, it's a really apt way of understanding a lot of what has been going on in the last few years. There's many levels of it. The one is what, uh, what, what we were just talking about, which is not the government, but it is, uh, people were probably supporters of the, of president Trump, um, certainly racists and white nationalists um, who just uh, feel emboldened and free to terrorize other people in that, in that way, or to try to, and to try to intimidate them. So that certainly has a, takes a psychological toll and it's a distraction, but um, it also is the sy- symbol to people that you are, we see you as worthless. We will do anything. I think, you know, family separation, obviously the first concern is, uh, the children and the families that who were um, brutalized that way, like the kids who might be scarred the rest of their life. But it, the harm goes beyond that. As I mentioned earlier uh, about people uh, that's just stress, that uh, you know things like drop in birth weight among Latino families. When, when the government will rip kids from the arms of their parents, we are denying their most basic. Humanity and and we're literally I think saying we will do anything to you. There's no bottom. There's no limit That's scary. I also think it's something in in the Trump administration um, Trump was consistently harsh and cruel to immigrants throughout his presidency, but I do think there was a shift The first couple years he was in office uh, they there were these grand gestures of cruelty um, what, what one writer called uh, cruelty is the point it Was as if to to show everyone how cruel I can be to immigrants was the point of many policies which in terms of numbers were often not all that efficient the last say I think 12 to 18 months there's been a shift they've gotten actually smarter and better they really have now changed the system so that at a much broader level it's not just being cruel It's it's doing it really efficiently and across the board Um, so that becomes almost mundane. Uh, So they've gotten smarter at at their cruelty.
1: It really is frightening. Um, So then putting this all in context, you write, the next chapter's uh, titled How to Talk to Your Neighbours About Immigration. So you have mentioned already, you know, people put forward ideas like, why don't they just come here legally? And, you know, there's other sort of rhetoric like they broke the rules, they don't pay their taxes and get the benefits from the government, they're taking American jobs, criminals should be deported, they should speak English, immigration should be based on merit. Why should we take on their problems? What sort of things do you recommend saying to our neighbors, you know, when you know you engage in sort of conversation, this comes up, or what what advice can you give in this sense? Okay.
2: I think it's really important to try to have an understanding of who you're talking to, uh, to be really honest about this, because there are people who feel passionately about, uh, immigration who cannot be persuaded by facts or reason, right? So, um, that if they, they might say, I want people to come legally, or I don't know why people pay taxes and you can tell them and show them evidence about how much immigrants pay in taxes and, Uh, and no matter what answer you give, they'll move on to another reason, but they always just want the immigrants out. Um, people like that, honestly, I'm not sure how much time should be spent on them because I don't, I certainly don't know how to persuade them. I am more Mm -hmm. interested and I, uh, and one of the reasons I wrote the book in people who actually, they're literally really confused actually. Why is it that people are living outside the law in a country where we really Uh, Want to be a law-abiding society and that bothers them, you know as a law professor I'm glad that bothers them at some level and I I think for people like that there. There's a lot one can say Um, uh, there's People don't understand why it is that people are not able to immigrate legally and People don't understand that we don't have a sense of proportionality for the most part in our immigration system so that we will deport people after 25 years and no criminal record and the I think it's important to uh, be able to talk that through with people. But frankly, um, the other thing people really need to do is just realize how many immigrants, how many undocumented immigrants are in their own life. Many, for many of us, it's many more than we realize. And we're often blind to it. And, and um, to take more account of it within our own life. Many of us live in houses that were built by undocumented immigrants. There are people who may, um, you know, think that they're against illegal immigration and hire an undocumented immigrant to clean their house. That's pretty common. Um, I think it's important to see that and to talk about those situations. And then, yes, like things like restaurants and the food we eat, and also just to, uh, for to recognize that this, these are the mothers and fathers whose kids go to school with our kids and go to university with our kids, and and uh, to realise that we are in this community together, whether we like it or not, and um, and we need to think about what it means to be a neighbour, first and foremost, and then we can find out information about how much sales tax and income tax immigrants pay. It's a lot, um, and, and uh, that sort of thing.
1: Mm. No, and that's really helpful advice, actually. Um, and so now, because you do obviously a lot of work with your a legal clinic and also as an academic but also you've been involved in some legislative change um, so for example you wrote about one I think it was in 2017 um, a bill that attempted at least in part to prevent the breakup of families um, but it was defeated in the legislature can you talk a little bit what happened then and also more recently the work you've been involved in
2: Sure. So in 2017, we tried uh, a bill that would have limited the ability of local police in the state of Nevada to turn people over and hold people for extra time um, for ICE. Uh, So the idea was a way to try to control the, uh, the, the deportation pipeline Um, That starts with the local arrest to put some local control over it, which is entirely within the authority of a local government It was defeated because we were just so incredibly naive about the kind of fight that a bill like that would involve. Uh, Basically, um, the Republicans said um, that this bill would make Nevada a sanctuary state that pulls very badly. And uh, the Democrats pulled that bill without even hearing in 2017 uh, and uh, we still don't have a law like that on the books in Nevada but many other states do uh, now there has been a movement towards it so I hope that fights that over but we've had some other successes uh, thanks really to the um, some amazing people that uh, I've known here uh, so for example we um, uh, ha- Nevada passed a law to allow people to get occupational licenses without regard to their immigration status. So that's um, things like, say, to work as a handyman, to be a general contractor. One of the reasons uh, a handyman like that is undocumented might be short on money is because he can't uh, um, uh, charge his high rates because he may not even be supposed to work and he can't get a contractor's license because of his immigration status. So um, fortunately, that's no longer... The um, the law in Nevada, ranging from being a general contractor to cutting hair to being uh, a doctor, uh, all levels of the economy. And I'm really proud of that. Um, as a credit, actually. to two uh, two Salvadoran Americans uh, I know, one Selena Torres, uh, who was a uh, the youngest member of the state assembly, who sponsored and fought for that bill, and Myra um, Salinas Menjevar uh, was was a fellow and uh, our clinic at UNLV, who just uh, worked um, pretty much 24 hours a day to um, the legal technicalities for that bill. And that was a huge step forward I think will pay off for people in the long run, um, you know, in their ability to, to make a living.
1: And then also what you've been involved in is um, advocacy. So, for example, in relation to one one of the cases of one of the immigrants that you write about... Um, you know, there was sort of calling people making phone calls and campaigns to try and prevent deportation. Can you talk a bit more about advocacy work but and why we can't rely on advocacy?
2: Well, I think my real message is we can't rely on any one strategy. So we, uh, I, and I, I talked to a friend of mine as a community organizer here, at Blitz Reckwood Trouts, who described it as, being able to drive in more than one lane that we need to have lawyers and we need to be able to go to court both in the big cases and the small and to fight those tooth and nail. But you also need to be able to uh, mobilize people in the community. You need to be able to uh, have a protest and a press conference outside a government office and get the local TV cameras there. You need to have uh, relations with elected officials. You need to have Um, the ability to put some pressure on elected officials. You need to have all these things. Uh, And when they can work together, that's when um, there can be some real power. A a difficulty I think we have is um, elected officials and political parties are very interested in mobilization of people, but really only for one purpose, which is to get them to the polls to vote. And so there's been a, a lot of investment in the immigrant community in the state of Nevada to get them to vote, mostly for the Democratic Party. But um, turning that apparatus to also then push for policies once people are elected, that's the trick that I think we're, we're still working on, but it's growing.
1: And that's really interesting. So um, tying all of these points together, what are your, do you have any recommendations for you know, the road forward?
2: Right. So obviously at the time I wrote the book, I was uh, long before the election was held, so right now, I am more feeling a bit better than I certainly was a year ago, but not, I'm not very at ease for a number of reasons. First of all, the election was not a blowout. Uh, Joe Biden did win, but it was not a blowout by any means. I don't think it was a sound repudiation of Trumpian politics. So I think what we have is a breather for four years, maybe longer than that, but not forever. And the danger that we have seen is still looming out there. And so that work has to be done to make sure that communities are better defended and better ready have a better understanding of this kind of attack than we did in 2016. And uh, I, I am, Concerned about uh, the future of the country, especially in terms of race relations, because of what's happened in our politics these last few years. But I really want to say to people like me, to be blunt, what I mean is white people, people with uh, some status and education and wealth. A lot of people to the who are not who have the luxury of not having to think about the immigration about the immigration system have been genuinely horrified and motivated by the things Trump has done. Opinion polls show that Americans are more pro-immigrant now than they were four years ago. So that's a positive sign. But I fear that a lot of that is a visceral reaction against Trump. And that once we have someone in the White House who is dignified and not overtly racist, the people will say, okay, I guess we can go back to the so-called bread and butter issues. Immigration is often treated as a peripheral matter uh, that only is important to you know, certain ethnic constituency groups. And uh, if that is the case, then, then our neighbors are going to remain very, very vulnerable. So I hope that people who've had their eyes opened in the last few years will continue to care and demand that we fix the system so that it does not happen, at least what we just have seen, that it does not happen again.
1: And in this context also, I'm interested to know what you think are the key mistakes as opposed to intentional policies that have been made by previous administrations in relation to immigration.
2: Right. I think there's been huge mistakes by people who are uh, purported to be friends of immigrants. So, for example, proposals to uh, legalize undocumented immigrants would often uh, talk about them as wrongdoers, say that people would have to go to the back of the line as if they'd cut in front of a line that doesn't even exist, uh, that they might have to pay a fine or that they have to, they'd be lectured in, uh, that they have to pay back taxes when actually immigrants tend to pay taxes so, uh, or lecture that they have to learn English when there's no real evidence that immigrants are not trying to learn English um, and that, or that it's a really a long-term problem at all. So um, I, the other real problem, and I already see signs of this re-emerging with the Biden administration, is a trend, I think, in the Democratic Party in the U.S. to say that we embrace undocumented immigrants who live in our communities, but we don't want more people coming to the border. This is incoherent. This it basically treats – first of all, it doesn't make sense, and I honestly I think voters will detect that there's some incoherency and insincerity in it if we like undocumented immigrants why are we trying to keep so many more out secondly though what if we see migration as a bad thing it will entrap us in the cycle of cruelty once the government decides our goal is to keep people from coming to our country then its only recourse will be to become harsher and harsher to try to deter them that's what led trump to take babies out of their mother's arms was to try to deter others. It's actually a very logical outcome of looking at migration that way. We need to start saying that migration is good. It is a safety valve for human beings. It's something we're probably evolved to do. And we want to be a place that immigrants want to immigrate to. It's good for them to choose us. That means we're doing well as a country but I don't hear that really from very many people, even in um, the democratic party for the most part. I do think things are moving, but I worry that we're gonna get trapped in that cycle of cruelty again.
1: Well, I, I do hope that um, what you're saying does come true in terms of you know, more openness and yeah. Um, so, Michael, I've taken a lot of your time now, but just before you go, I'm wondering if you can share with us what you're working on now.
2: Well, let's see. In COVID times, what I'm really working on now is uh, trying to remember um, which online class each of my children are supposed to be in at any time, and that takes up a lot of my brain space. Um, I, uh, I do plan to re- uh, to return to doing my usual stuff as a law professor, to writing. A, I want to write a. Um, more scholarly work on uh, the burden of proof we use in immigration court Uh, surprisingly little evidence is required from the government to deport someone from the country Uh, and I want to take a closer look at that I do hope to write another book uh, one day um, for a general audience Uh, but uh, I've got a notebook filled with at least four different ideas maybe I'll pick one of them or maybe none of them
1: Well, I mean, that sounds like very important work and hopefully we can have you back on the show um, when you do write that. So, um, yeah, it's very, very significant. The book again is The Battle to Stay in America, Immigration's Hidden Frontline. It's by Professor Michael Kagan, published by the University of Nevada Press earlier this year. I'm Jane Richards and I've been speaking with Michael Kagan for the New Books Network on the New Books in Law channel. Michael Kagan, thank you for your time today.
2: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you.